1: Oh my goodness! A lot of thanks to give on this Sunday night. So much so, I wanted to go live. Yeah, I haven't gone live on Spreaker in quite a while, but here we are, and uh, we're gonna get to a conversation with Professor Jason Barr on Twitter at Jason Barr R-U. But first, I wanna I wanna spend a few minutes saying thank you. Uh, firstly, thanks to CUNY Adaptive for a big week. I mean. We talked wheelchair basketball, a sport I'm quite familiar with and love talking about and even love announcing at both the Henry Viscardi school and now with CUNY Adaptive. Great to have Ryan Martin on. So thanks to CUNY for that. Thanks to the city university of New York for taking notice. They actually retweeted the interview with Ryan Martin, which you can find on Alex Garrett podcasting or my YouTube page at Alex Garrett. I'll have to rebrand that too in a bit, but, uh, my YouTube page is right there as well if, if you just Google. So those, those couple things. Uh, I want to thank even the, the other guests we had this week. I mean, Jamie Kirkbride and Personality Mom talking about Valentine's Day for kids. And then I want to thank Jason Barr for this upcoming interview. I mean, it was a great interview to have, to tape. And should we really expand Manhattan? We'll get into that in just a minute. But. On this Sunday night, something else is on my mind before we even get to that. I stumbled on an article that says, on Huffington Post, actually, HuffPost.com by Jenna Amatuli. HuffPost.com, here's how to make sure Congress hears you. She followed the thread of Emily Coleman at Editor Emily E., who had worked for Congress, in fact, worked with uh, Jason Chaffetz and Chris Stewart in uh, Congress, and using her six years' experience, she tweeted out what I learned about how to how they listen to constituents, meaning Congress. And this was so important that uh, a reader made a actual one sheet, calling it "How to Effectively." Talk to your member of Congress. Should I send a letter or make a phone call? And there's these whole tips about how to be heard by your Congress. Look, we pay a lot of money to these Congress people. That our tax dollars it goes to Washington, right? So why not make it make a, a guide on how to talk to your Congress or Congresswoman? She said, firstly. Tweeting or writing on Facebook is largely ineffective. I, and, and as a staffer, she says, I never looked at those comments except to remove the harassing ones. She said sending a letter to the district office in the state is better than sending an email or writing a letter to D.C. But actually picking up the phone and calling is the most effective way to get in touch with Congress. And... Apparently, after a radio host gave out a district phone number about immigration policy, telling the the constituents to call and complain about the policy... They did, according to Emily E. All day long. She was answering the phones all day long after a radio host dropped the number of the Congressional Office to change policy. So calling works. And the other big thing, which you can find at the HuffPost article, here's how to make sure Congress hears you. If you want to talk to your rep, Show up at town hall meetings. Get a huge group that they can't ignore. Pack that place and ask questions. We held town uh, halls consistently, she says, that fewer than 50 people showed up for. All right, so if you don't want the policies, if you want to just complain and even call into radio stations, that may be somewhat effective, but get out there is the point. Get out to your town halls. Make some noise. Get going. Heck, the MTA here in New York, you can actually QR code the 2022 MTA board budget, I believe, and react and take this survey and have input. So instead of complaining about the MTA, respond to them, make a difference, use that QR code, and get going. You, by the touch of your fingertips, could make a difference at the MTA if you only knew that. If you only knew that by traveling the subway. So go to town halls, go to board meetings, and if they say, "Hey, you can have a say in what goes into our 2022 budget," have a say. Especially if you don't want to complain. She also, uh, this Emily Ellsworth is her name, at editor Emily E. She also said, invite local staffers to show up to advocacy events. Let them talk to people you work with and set up meetings. Invite staffers on field trips and show them what it's like in your communities. Yes, we must show Congress what it's like in our communities and why there's so much struggling going on. That's a must. You can find it all at Here's How to Make Congress Hear You, Make Sure Congress Hears You by Jenna Amatuli. I want to just get that to you. You can follow Emily at Writer Emily E. I'm sorry, let me get that right. At Editor Emily E. Editor Emily E. And uh, find out more about what she says about how Congress can hear you. We just have to make sure. They hear us. And there's ways to do it. And now, speaking of being heard, speaking of being heard live on Alex Garrett Podcast, we are going to welcome Jason Barr of Rutgers University, Newark, to discuss why he believes and I'm sharing this on Twitter, hence the delay, why he believes uh, that the New York, that he believes so strongly that he wrote the New York Times about expanding Manhattan. That's right. Should we expand Manhattan? Jason Barr, Rutgers University, joins me right well, here on Alex Garrett Podcasting, you know, the city applauded the expansion of ninety of the 96th Street subway that the queue finally got done. But what about an expansion of the entire island of Manhattan, which I think is an ambitious plan? More so, how about 1,760 acres worth of an expansion? My guest, Jason M. Barr, Professor Barr of uh, Economics at Rutgers, Newark, joins me. You had this huge op-ed in the New York Times the minute Eric Adams got you know sworn in as mayor saying, Mr. Mayor, expand the city, 1,760 acres, affordability and climate were your main concerns, but I want to hear from you uh, from the pen to now what you have to say about it on this podcast. Thanks for joining me.
0: Oh, yeah, sure. Happy to be here.
1: So it's an ambitious plan, and where did that idea come from, and, and what— What was the reasoning for writing it, I guess, my first uh, question.
0: Um, Okay, well, I'll take the second one first. I I mean, the reason um, for writing it is, like you said, I mean, New York is suffering, I would say, from at least uh, two major problems, if not more. But two two things that really concern me are the effects of climate change, uh, sea level rise and storm surges, uh cannot be avoided e- even if we stopped even if planet earth stopped producing co2 uh we'd still have to worry about uh mitigation against climate change so uh, that's one thing i mean if you look at uh, the bloomberg had a plan de blasio has a plan they're you know they're, they're working on some of it now with uh, sea seawalls and um and expanding the you know and, and improving the the shoreline um along barry park city things like that so that so but my idea was to expand upon these ideas in a really like mega kind of way and the reason is because new york city has a housing affordability crisis i mean uh in the especially in the lower income brackets uh, people are spending 40 50 percent of their income on rent um and you know everybody's aware of it and everybody's concerned about it but nobody's The the city and the state seem unwilling or unable to really, you know, make big um, changes that would fundamentally produce more housing and lower the cost of housing. So, uh, how would we? Things were on my mind. Yeah, so that's when I put together the plan. Go on. Sorry.
1: How would we pay for this? I think that's what New Yorkers would be curious about.
0: Okay. Well, here's the thing. Um, I mean, so in the the big quest, the big the big answer to that question is. Creating new land is expensive, to be sure. I mean, we're talking about uh, tens of billions of dollars. However, once you make new land, it immediately becomes some of those valuable real estate on the planet because it's an extension of Lower Manhattan. So the plan is to extend Lower Manhattan into the bay, And so uh, you have real estate. You have, you know, know, the three most famous uh, aspects of real estate, location, location, location. You instantly um create incredibly valuable real estate. The money from the real estate sales or the rents or however, there's many different ways to kind of design uh, the, design a plan to generate the income. but suffice it to say either the rental income or the building sales income would could pay for itself, could pay for the infrastructure and the land creation and probably even make a profit and even probably generate a profit for the city in the process.
1: Well, what so. about for the average New Yorker? I mean, they look at this and say, well, if it seems like rent would go up, would it not, if this plan were to go through?
0: Okay, well, I have a couple of responses to that. Um, the first is... <laughs> We, we seem to forget in the 21st century that the laws of supply and demand still operate in the housing market. They operate in that way now as they ever did in the past. Um, so the, the problem with the New York City housing market today is the demand to be in New York, the demand to live in New York, uh, is just is, is as much, is as great as it's ever been. I mean, New York City's population today is 8.8 million. That's the highest population population the city of new york has ever had uh and the problem is with that demand that means there should be um corresponding supplies which is not happening especially at the middle the middle and the lower income levels sure the supply can be um (laughs) catered to the to the upper end but not the middle class and the lower class so the question is what would happen if we created this new land? Well, first, you are creating supply, so all supply is good. Not all supply is equally as good, but all supply is helpful. So, even if it was upper middle income, middle and upper income, that is more housing, and more housing means that other housing then becomes available, and the price for those houses. You know, this is what they call. So the
1: basically, you are saying if, if if the rich, because you know we want the rich to come back, by the way, so if they pay a little more then we'll be able to afford it in the middle class level is is how you're thinking or even lower oh, well class. That, okay.
0: Yeah, that's one part of it. Okay. So one part of it is if you literally, you know, people don't seem to understand this. If you double the housing stock in New York City, which this proposal doesn't double the housing stock, but it would add uh there's three there's three point four million housing units in New York City. My plan has about two hundred thousand, so maybe that's uh, less than ten percent. But still if you could <laughs> increase the housing stock by like eight percent um, in a reasonably uh, rapid time that would have reverberations to through Manhattan and, and Brooklyn but th- so that's the first part of it just adding supply in of itself is a crucial part of the story it's not the only part well
1: now, I, the, yeah no oh, go I'm for it. go for part two I'm, I'm curious now
0: okay now, here's the thing um, there are models around the world I mean you know you know people may not realize this but Hong Kong and Singapore or all of the land is owned by the respective government and what they do is they lease out large chunks of land to developers so there's a model where you create the land it's owned you know like a, by like um like an authority maybe like the battery park city authority type model and you could the land could be leased out like 99 year leases to developers the conditions of the lease would say okay it's, 15% of the housing or 20% of the housing must go to people with, uh, you know, their the household income is 50%, you know, is below the, in the 50th, you know, b- below the median for New York City. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of say. Once you create this land, sure. the city owns the land, and the city could say, okay, look, we're going to reserve... Certain portion for high end luxury, but we're also going to say a certain fraction has to be for people of middle and lower income. Um, you know, it's really not that complicated. <laughs> well,
1: tell me, Jason M. Barry is a professor of economics at Rutgers, Newark, and he's written this ambitious plan to expand Manhattan Harbor, expand Manhattan into the New York Harbor by 760, 1,760 acres. Now, your plan also includes the extension of the subway, and we all know subway extensions just do crawl along. So what, did you write this proposal hoping they'd speed that up, or what, what was your thought on that?
0: Uh, well, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, I, I agree with you. It is an ambitious plan, so it, it is just that, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, a big plan. So, I mean, you're creating the land. You don't have the tunnel— You don't have to worry about, uh, you know, disturbing the neighbors or, you know, or uh, restaurants aren't going to have to worry about dust being uh, cut up, you know, from the street because there's nobody there. So in principle, um, a large fraction of the subway extensions like so, for example, if you just continued the one train down from South Ferry into this new land, I mean, (laughs) there's you just run it. Now, if you're going to do, like, a G-Train extension, you know, you'd have to tunnel, so that obviously would, uh, you know, you'd have to create some kind of connection from Brooklyn to uh, to this new sure, land, so sure. that would require. But, but um, you know, in principle... Uh, okay, so there's two issues. In principle, the, the engineering of it and the logistics of it shouldn't be that too complicated. Uh, it's just... Um, the other issue is obviously... <laughs> the I don't know what the right phrase is, but the, the sort of the collective difficulty that New York has in um, sort of mustering, you know, getting the, the resources and actually if putting into place all of the elements that needed, are needed for this. So um, if the city's going to think big about this land in, in reality, then I think adding subway extensions is probably not that, you know, it doesn't add that much more complexity to sure. the project.
1: Okay, how long did it take, because uh, this is a very elaborate plan, so how long did it take to <laughs> yeah. come up with all of this?
0: How long did it take to come up with my... Yeah, with, my mind with with the... the propos- yeah,
1: I feel like you did a lot oh, of research wow. for this also.
0: Um, well, I would say, yeah. I mean, I wrote a book in 2016, and it's about... It's called Building the Skyline. It's just about the long-run sort of history of uh, of the Manhattan skyline. And... and um, you know, in the book, I uh, go back to basically the day that the um, the Dutch settled uh, what was then New Amsterdam. You know, because I, I, if you want to understand today's skyline, I think you have to understand the decisions that were made and the, uh, and the acts that were taken by the earlier, you know, uh, the Dutch and then the English and so forth. So in the process of researching that book, you know, you see, you realize, the long run history of making Manhattan a global city was about uh, creating new land all the time. I mean, the first thing, one of the first things the Dutch did when they arrived was <laughs> was dig a canal, which then became Broad Street. And they they drained the wetlands. They extended, um, you know, the the, the the southern tip of Manhattan was the basically where the facade of the American Museum, uh, the Museum of the American Indian, is today, and so. All of that land behind the Battery that was filled out by a little bit by the Dutch, more by the British, and then in the 19th century, you know, by New Yorkers. Battery Park City was expanded out in the 1970s, and you know. So, the point is, building out land in New York is a is a 400 year tradition. So, Mm. then when the uh, Superstorm Sandy came along, I started thinking again about this idea and and. And then I write, I think about write about the housing affordability problem. So you
1: know, all these things kind of came into my mind. <laughs> well, I want to. You say you it, it could make room for two hundred fifty thousand more New Yorkers. I've got to ask you about the census because De Blasio takes credit for this, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is a ten year thing. So you did not bring all these people here. Uh, what were your thoughts on that when you saw the census come out and say yes, even though in the pandemic we still had. A relatively, a relatively large portion of New Yorkers stay here.
0: I mean, personally, I was pleasantly surprised. I, I would not have, a, you know, if you look at other numbers issued by like uh, New York City Department of Health and other, and the American Community Survey. So the census, the, the sort of the pre, the, the the intercensus year numbers didn't seem to suggest such a high number. But the fact that it came in high, I mean, in a way. I was surprised, but I was not surprised. Um, you know, I'm an urban economist, so I study and I and I think about and I write about like what makes New York so attractive. And even though the pandemic came, you know, sort of made us question some of those things about New York, I think fundamentally they didn't go away. I mean, the American, the, the New York economy thrives on skills, on knowledge, uh, on you know, just. Sort of uh, learning from each other and sort of being in the mix, and that's you know Wall Street's like that. The Silicon Alley type firms are like that. So those things have really haven't gone away, um because we need them. We, we those things, those kind of uh, the kind of jobs that power New York City. Maybe some of it can be decentralized, but fundamentally it can't.
1: Jason, I want to get back to what you said. You're an urban economist, so. I think people are more worried that we're not going to get back full strength and I think that's got to be the first concern for New Yorkers. So how do we get back full strength let alone build out 1760 acres more? <laughs>
0: well, maybe I could ask you to clarify. I mean, you know, I mean, if you look at housing prices there even in New York. I mean, Manhattan rents are coming back,
1: Brooklyn rents are coming back, um, you know, housing prices now, what about the buildings? Do you, do you see the buildings be occupied? Are they becoming occupied again? All these work, you know, buildings yeah, for work.
0: No, the offices, the office occupancy definitely lags. Um, you, you, you know, there's you always see these. I see these reports. About, you know the uh, anticipation for offices, the firms that you know for businesses to have their workers come back. Originally, it was supposed to be like a year ago, and then it was supposed to be the beginning of the year, and then it maybe postponed in March. So I think there's this real tension between people and companies wanting to occupy those offices, um, and you know the fear of pandemic. Uh, so, sure. but. So I think the long-run prospect is reasonably positive. So there's a couple of things. Okay. Generally speaking, New York is a good is a, is a happening place to be. And if office space is not really what it was, that space will find other uses. Um, and the other thing is, you know, people working. Well, in the let home. me when when, you
1: get, to, when yeah. you get to that point, I, I still feel like there's a danger of flipping a office building to affordable housing. I don't know. It's just um a bit of a knee-jerk reaction I have when I see that kind of process being talked about
0: well i don't i don't personally have a problem with that i mean the thing about office the thing about the new york city office market unlike the housing market is you know there's there's lags because it takes time to build a high-rise office building but you know when right when rents go up when vacancy goes down uh, developers will build high-rise offices so if you look at the long run of office rents in New York City, it goes up, it goes down. It's not like housing prices, which just kind of go up. So if if if, if, if somehow offices uh, today were all converted to housing and you lost office space that was then needed, I can promise you between the mayor and the developer and the real estate community, they would get those offices. People object. The NIMBYism-type thinking is much less, uh, I would argue, much less pervasive in the office market. So that can respond as the need arises. And
1: affordable well, housing is a good
0: thing. I'm not sure if that's what you were getting at.
1: But, well, uh, more so that because we do know that the – I don't know. Maybe I'm jaded in thinking that if they make affordable housing, the homeless will be put in there, which means some that are mentally unstable would be right in the heart of Midtown. And I'm, I'm wary of that, and maybe I'm wrong to be wary of that.
0: Well, um, yeah, I, I I think so. I think that's, in my opinion, that's not the biggest concern. I mean, homelessness, number one, homelessness, there, there's two elements to homelessness. One is just simply not enough um, housing at the very low income ranges for people who have low incomes. I mean, you know, the history of New York City, the Bowery was like... Sure was was like flop house row if you yep. really didn't have much money and you didn't have a job and you know if you sort of if you didn't have severe mental illness you could rent a room and it was a private you know basically a private hotel you could rent a room you can you sort of make do and that kind of housing doesn't really exist anymore um so <laughs> we we need more of we need more of more housing uh for people who are homeless and that's I don't think that's a bad thing, but the other issue is obviously the mental health aspect of it, and that's a whole other. <laughs> a whole
1: well, other I got to ask you, I, I, back to your plan, because I feel like only a true blue New Yorker would write this kind of plan to expand Manhattan. So, are you a true blue New Yorker?
0: I like to think so. Yes, <laughs> I, that, yes, yes. <laughs> where were you? Where are you from? Well, I'm. I would grow up in Long Island. My okay. my father was uh, born and raised in the Bronx, up uh, by Pelham Parkway. Um, and my mother, uh, she might have. I think she was. I think my mother was born in Canarsie, but then um, when my parents got married, they moved to Long Island. So that that's kind of. Uh, I grew up there. I, I was sort of a an unhappy. It was, you know, living sure. in the suburbs was just not like really my thing. I mean, it's true. I, I do 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 new, I, I still live in the suburbs, but um, I, I went to I got my PhD in New York. You know, uh, to me, just being in or around New York is is, is well, I gotta say, it's who I am. When I
1: started reading more on this at the New York Times op ed, um, uh, I which basically says, you know, 1760 acres, that's what Manhattan would need, and I'm like. Whoa, that headline jumps right at you. Um, But the way it's described, the way you write it, is that we don't want to have a day after tomorrow scenario where the Statue of Liberty is sinking in the water. And I'm like, maybe that's why he wants to extend the harbor, because maybe we can prevent the sinking of Manhattan that way.
0: Exactly, exactly. I mean, if you you know, lower Manhattan has to be protected. It's going to be hit. It's going to be affected by storm surges. I mean, and the other thing is, you know, is is if, if the, maybe people are reluctant to admit this, but New York, Wall Street is literally like the heart of the New York economy, and so these the the, the offices and the firms down there, they it just has to be protected. I mean, um, we have to face that reality. So we should think big.
1: Well, and uh, on yeah. that on that note, two things. Let's say you decide to run for mayor one day. I don't know if you can or not. Uh, would you actually work to enact this proposal?
0: I would try, but the uphill, the battle, uh, the battle to do it is, um, <laughs> I, I'm, let's just say I'm aware of the ferocity for, for, uh, of, of the battle that would ensue. Um, you know, if you look at the history of, uh, of Koch, he tried to create Westway, uh in the 80s and that got um basically uh, defeated because of concerns of uh, the ecology of, of some of you know the, some of the fish and, and things like this so there was this sort of argument that if you touch the water um you're you know that's the, the water the, the touching the water in some way has in, in some way has become a taboo and so that that is a huge motivator for some people they start saying we're gonna sort of do landfill and the immediate reaction is you can't do that and you know again some of the naysay is is coming from this idea that you oh we're just going to have a lot of apartment buildings for really rich people you know uh, number one is okay yeah we'll, we'll have some apartment building for rich people we don't have to have the whole thing for rich people but um we can't ignore the fact that new york city is the most one of the most vibrant cities in the world because it's um attractive to everybody poor and rich alike and so um
1: when i first heard this plan i was told that trump tower might be built again downtown i don't know if that's part of your idea or not but she mentioned something about trump tower being involved another one downtown
0: I'm not familiar with the uh, the plans for another
1: truck. I just was curious to know if that was part of the thing. (laughs) Uh, Uh, I think skyscrapers are an important part of the city. So I think any new land
0: should include uh, include them.
1: Um, Going green. uh, You know, the skyscrapers are now supposed to go green. Has that affected development of them? Has that hindered them? Has that just they're not stopping anyway? They're going to build these skyscrapers no matter what regulations are on them?
0: Um, okay. Well, fundamentally, a skyscraper is built based on the weighing of the costs and the benefits. And the fact that they've been continued to be built suggests that the profits of them are so high. Now, the regulations, if they add a little bit more to the cost, um, you know, sometimes this is something uh, that developers are willing to pay. I mean, there's a big movement for LEED certification, where you uh, you have some kind of uh, you know some kind of measures, whether it's a you know solar panels or or gray water reclamation, or you you, you have a, a computer system that operates the temperatures of the building. So uh, developers adapt uh, if, if if the requirements for um, you know uh, CO two production become an issue they'll they'll adapt because if there's a demand they'll figure out a way to supply it so uh, you know maybe it adds a little bit more to the cost of these things but fundamentally i don't think it's really going to damper uh, the new york city market as long as people want to be here
1: well clearly we've seen the uh, grand central observatory that that skyscraper finally opened this this uh, past okay, year yeah, which yeah. is i don't know if you've been up there but i hear it's competing with the empire state building for views of the city if i'm not mistaken
0: I haven't been there. Um, then there's the other one. I think it's called The Edge. I, I think New York is actually about to probably like hit like a glut in observatories. <laughs> so... Um,
1: well, you got to keep that's us posted on that, all right? I, want, I would love to have you as a as a contributor because I feel like you've got a lot of knowledge on all the city skyscrapers and buildings. And, you know, life longer New Yorker myself, I want to see skyscrapers keep being built. Um, Okay, this proposal have you considered, not just putting in writing, but submitting something for Mayor Adams and his office to literally look at and consider over the next few years?
0: Um, well, I have... Okay, so after I did the proposal and saw the reactions, um, you know, I've actually had some requests from some online magazines to expand upon it. I've been thinking about it. I have my own blog. So I will be expanding upon it, the idea...
1: Want to give me a sneak peek to give people a sneak peek before you write on
0: (laughs) it? I don't know what to say. I mean, um, other than to say the critics say it can't be done, I disagree. Uh, What are the issues? What are the costs? Um, You know, these are the kind of things I have to – how are we going to get the material to fill in the land? All of these things have to be kind of addressed. So I I don't know if that's a sneak peek or not, but – yeah, so it's just just trying to fill in the details, really, is, is what I need to do. So maybe once that's there, I can then start, like, shopping it around as as well. I mean, but the, the other issue is the time factor, and this is a really big thing. If climate change is here, uh, climate change problems are here now, what happens if we have another s- Sandy uh, nice. this October, or, you know, uh, or another another Sandy uh, a year from October, uh, we're, we're in a really bad position, and something like this, you know, it's, it's a big-thinking idea. It would take uh, take at least a decade, if not more.
1: While I have you, I think you referenced something about the BQE also. There's a lot of proponents saying portions of it should be torn out because of the climate change factor or something involving it, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Uh, yeah, I, to be honest, I haven't spent much time looking into that, Um I have, I will say I've thought a lot about uh, traffic congestion from somebody who, as an urban economist who sits in traffic a lot, uh, unfortunately, you you know, uh, you you get stuck, you know, you get try to drive, I I drive from my house over to George Washington Bridge, and so uh, when I go to my office in in Newark, and um, (laughs) you get stuck on the bridge a lot, Mm. I, I, I would just say, I'll just say this, without going into detail you know the, the, the way cities like new york operate is like here's a problem let's just sort of like try to do something to fix it oh here's another problem let's just try to do something to fix it okay so your housing's expensive okay well let's uh um let's put together a 10-year housing plan that just sort of patches together enough things to make it seem like we're solving the housing affordability problem. Oh, the traffic problem or oh. the, uh, the climate crisis. Well, let's take care of the BQE or let's do that over there. The As an urban economist, I said we need to think systematically. Transportation, housing, uh, uh, shoreline protections, uh, office markets, they're all interconnected and they need to be, um, policies need to be designed. Sure. Traffic and housing, transportation, housing—they all go together. So maybe that's a long-winded response to your uh, proposal. Uh, you know, I'm not opposed to tearing down highways, but you can't just take away a highway and say, "Okay, we've solved the problem." I mean, sure. if people rely on that road. You got to say, "Okay, well, here's two or three other ways you can get to the same place without being on this highway." So, Jason, I
1: don't know if it's in the city or other cities. Are you the first? to say let's build out this expansion slash are there other uh, urban economists if you will in other cities saying the same for their um you know like a chicago or boston or la even
0: well in miami they seem not to be like no no i would say most people are to be honest I, i don't know how this is going to sound but i would say that these kind of proposals uh Um,
1: it takes a certain gumption to write them. Let's just put it that way. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And it also you take a certain gumption, and uh, political leaders it not only takes a gumption. I can do this, right? I'm an academic. I I'm sitting there in my you know in my in academia writing big ideas. So I can propose this. I can be the guy who comes to the party and say, oh, "Listen, the music's too loud," or "The music's bad music." I can say that because it's not my party, so to speak. I just I just um, I just showed up at the party to. I, I don't. know, Maybe I'm, my metaphors are a little bit off here, but um,
1: I get what you're saying. It's like you can you can throw you know throw something at the wall and hope that it sticks. Kind of kind of thing almost.
0: Yeah, I don't have to get elected. I don't have to raise campaign funds, so I I could be the one who says, "Look, we ought to be thinking about this." Um, and I don't think you're going to find a lot of uh, you know people in the political sphere who are willing to stick their neck out. I mean, you know the the, the problem is. If you look at you know the after the World Trade Center site after the sure. Twin Towers you know that was kind of it for these big government projects and yeah. a lot of it was due to the mistakes that the government had made um, and then when Westway came along like I said that got uh, defeated because of concerns about the environment because of concerns about you know who was going to benefit from this uh, real estate development and, and and in a way there's this big shyness about really thinking big. Um,
1: in ways that are not obvious um well let the let me Yards ask you, was uh, yeah
0: obvious because uh you know it's valuable real estate and you know it was sort of over in this industrial area kind of and you know didn't really sort of ruffle too many feathers so you could do it
1: but, it was a boon yeah, actually no if you think about it it was it was a boon hey I, one last thing will we see the lifting of restrictions and will that help the city come back even more than we're starting to see it now
0: it Restrictions it in terms of like uh, housing and oh,
1: well, I mean the lockdown. I mean, as an urban economist, oh, I'm sure you're oh, following. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's inevitable.
0: <laughs> I mean, look, I'm not a hel- I'm not an epidemiologist or or whatever, but I mean, you know, if you look at the history of other uh, um, epidemics, especially in New York, you know, uh, they 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 either just uh, they become endemic and and more benign, like the flu, like the 1918 flu, just sort of morphed into like an annual flu. And that's where we're headed. And so, um...
1: Well, let me ask you, you do you think restrictions will be lifted anytime soon, I guess is my question.
0: I guess not. I mean, Mm. I don't know. I mean, I don't... Yeah, I'm not tapped into the, let's just say, the (laughs) the thinking on this, but I will say that uh, New York's in a much better position now than it was even a month ago. So it's looking pretty bright as far as I can tell.
1: Hey, Jason Um, Barr, Professor Barr I'm talking with, from Rutgers Newark, got to make that distinction uh, at a, their economics department. Where can we find your writing? Where can we find your blog?
0: Um, yeah, okay, great. My blog is called the Skynomics blog. Um, you can just find that, you know, through Google, for example. Um, and then that website, um, the, the Skynomics blog, is on my website. It's called building the Building the uh, it
1: Has information about my book. And um, are you on Twitter? In my research.
0: I am on Twitter. It's Jason Barr R U. So that at Jason B A R R R U is my Twitter uh, my Twitter handle.
1: Well, Jason, Professor, thanks so much for joining us today, and we're going to have you back because this is a conversation that's not going anywhere, and, and I want to follow up with you on this. Great, excellent. And I'll be following that blog as well. Jason cool. Barr R U. I Think I got that right, and uh, that's his Twitter. And just follow him, and, and uh, thanks again, Jason.
0: Sure, my pleasure.
1: I'm Alex Garrett, where we're always adapting, and maybe we will adapt, New York City and Manhattan as we go along here. And uh, and I guess you say the clock is ticking on sort of the, t- the fragility of our infrastructure. Maybe Jason's got it right on Alex Garrett Podcasting. Well, we will see, and I, I'm definitely glad Jason came on. Very fascinating guy, very fascinating conversation. Jason, if you're listening, please come back on. We'd love to have you. Now, another uh, thing I dug up today really quickly was a mic flag that uh, sports night. It's a gala where at my high school, Henry Viscari School, where a lot of athletes, sports athletes, gold medalists like, you know, Scott Hamilton, winners like Bud Harrelson uh, Eli Manning's been there, Joe Namath, Theismann, a whole host. Well, I got to act in the scene with uh, Scott Hamilton and when I was in junior year of high school. And that they created an, an Olympics mic flag because I was supposed to be Bob Costas. Well, I found that mic flag, and I kind of picked up the whole stand-up routine, I you know, like the reporting routine, and this is how it went. Alex Garrett, well, right now from Jamaica, Queens, maybe one day we'll be on the coverage for NBC Sports Olympics, but for now, enjoy every minute of the Winter Olympics in uh, Beijing 2022. It's interesting because it's the second year in a row where the Olympics is happening. Of course, Tokyo happened last year, and this year with the winter, it's a bit of a controversy over there. Nonetheless, we gotta root for Team USA. We gotta go for gold, and um, of course, catch all the action on NBC Olympics on Twitter, Instagram, and follow the Olympics themselves on Twitter and Instagram at the Olympics. For now, from Jamaica Queens, we're rooting from afar for Team USA. Hope you are as well, and maybe just maybe one day, this TikTok, this whole experience will land at the Olympics, and we'll be there covering it for you. But for now, go Team USA. That's right, go Team USA. By the way, you can find that on my TikTok, AlexGNYC1. And I mentioned there's a bit of a controversy. let Let me cut the bowl. I'm not entirely happy that Beijing's allowed to host this. I'm really not. I'm not happy that a Dutch reporter is taken away after trying to ask the Chinese officials something, you know, security takes them out. Not a fan of suppressing freedom of speech. Not a fan of oppressing any human. And I'm certainly not a fan of a country that uh, commits these human rights violations. So if you are the IOCC, maybe after all of this, you know, This, uh, how how do I call it? This firestorm you brought upon yourselves by sticking with Beijing, even after COVID-19, where it originated from China, no matter how you slice it, it came out of that country. Maybe rethink where you put the Olympics next. You know, you put it in Brazil for the summer in Rio, and that was showing how disastrous it was, the slums and everything like that. People had to be kicked out because of those stadiums. It was bad. So behind the guts and the glory of the Olympics is this dark shadow. Maybe go to a place that doesn't have dark shadows, but has potential, has freedom of speech and expression, has the red, white, and blue. I believe you're coming to America soon, aren't you? Olympics, stick to where freedom rings and Spotify, only delete those horrible podcasts by Joe Rogan. Do not delete every single one of them, because that is suppressing freedom of speech. Only the really, really bad ones. Since, you know, you do have a right to do it, since you own the content by sponsoring him. So it is up to you. But only, only the really the ones where he used the n-word and other horrible uh, commentary—that is—you can give it any ism and you want, but only those episodes. And if it's a hundred, so be it. But nothing more than that, because if we start answering him for what you believe is disinformation and and not freedom of speech, that's your judgment call. That's not his opinion anymore. And we are America, where we're supposed to have opinions. We were born out of debate in Philadelphia in 1776. Have a great night on Alex podcast.